Welcome to the Green Into Gold podcast. My name is Robert Politzer. Our podcast explores the intersection of profitability and sustainability in green building upgrades and decarbonization. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Peter Fasaro, who is the founder of the Wall Street Green Summit, managing director of climate tech at Wield and Company, and a pioneer in business sustainability. Peter, a very warm welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure being here. So, Peter, could you please start by providing um, some more detail on your very long history and involvement with corporate sustainability? Yeah, I, I started out as a policymaker at the Department of Energy, taking lead out of gasoline, working on LNG safety and siting, uh, co-writing an environmental impact statement. Uh, but I'm a native New Yorker, and where I really started working more with the corporate world was an energy efficiency programming with Con Ed and Brooklyn Union Gas, now known as Natural, National Grid. So really, uh, buildings are very seminal in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Here in New York City, where I live and you live, it's 75% of greenhouse gases. So the, there's been a lot of new technology over the last four decades, really to manage, uh, measure, and implement. Uh, when I was around, we were doing simple things like compact fluorescent lights, lighting retrofits, those type of things, which had pretty quick payback periods. Then later on, I worked um, with several of the private companies in the World Trade Center for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, also on energy efficiency programs. I'm the guy that got the variable speed drives in the tunnels when they were looking at, the, and I'm not an engineer, but looking at other designs, uh, but worked with Hertz Rent-A-Car at the airport. Airports are like mini cities. People don't realize that they are very energy intensive mm -hmm. and there's a lot of uh, opportunity. So the real game to me in terms of building infrastructure is the opportunity cost. We have an addressable market here in New York City. Is not, we have 950,000 structures. It's not small. And most of them are not green. So new construction will always be green, maybe lead platinum, but older construction has, is really the opportunity. And as we all know, we have a local law in 97 to start implementing the change that's necessary in New York City. Uh, you know, one thing that Mayor Bloomberg did with Al Gore about 10, 12 years ago after Sandy was to paint uh, rooftops white. Mm -hmm. Sounds very simple, mm -hmm. but cities are heat islands. Mm -hmm. So that was a simple solution. But there's more opportunity in many of the structures in New York City, not just lighting retrofits or changing windows or HVAC systems or boiler uh, retrofits. So, And the point is, you can make money doing the right thing. And we shall see if the carbon credits start materializing in New York as well, because there will be a market here. Mm -hmm. So in light of the growing number of low carbon local, state and federal mandates, including New York City Local Law 97, um, which was passed in uh, 2019 and is just coming into effect this year, there's also the Maryland Climate Solutions Now Act, which is actually even more aggressive than Local Law 97. Then on the federal level, there's the SEC ESG reporting mandate. So how effective do you believe these and other laws and mandates will be in actually lowering carbon emissions from commercial buildings? Well, the local law actually has teeth. 
So there are financial penalties for not complying. I'm not that familiar with the Maryland law. I just had lunch at the Harvard Club with a real expert on uh, ESG, it used to be corporate social responsibility. We don't have the rules from the SEC. And that's a problem. But what he was intimating to me was the good news was a lot of folks that were laggards are starting to consider how they are going to be more sustainable. So that's a positive in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I was a former regulator in Washington, D.C., and it would be better to have some teeth and regulatory compliance. But it's highly unlikely to read now that we are going to see the SEC move forward. But what it has done is move forward a lot of companies uh, to start looking at their global footprint, not just their uh, national footprint. And that also, once again, goes to buildings, corporate headquarters, supply chain, manufacturing buildings. We're kind of having an industrial renaissance in the United States now that people are kind of unaware of. It's creating a lot more jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are incentives for many of these things. Plus, there are other programs that have been around for decades, like shared savings, where you split the cost, capital costs, I, I think there's some more innovative financing come to pass, and we're probably going to see some of the energy service companies, the ESCO, started getting more involved in putting capital at risk in retrofits, because the market in the U.S. is primarily a retrofit market. As I mentioned before, in my opinion, new construction is going to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With regards to the SEC proposed ESG reporting mandate, as I'm sure you know, there's a backlash. Uh, there's, you know, there's this effort that's being financed by Leonard Leo. Um, I won't, I won't, you know, go into details on who, who this person is, but he's got a lot of money, and he's he's um, he's financing, um, I believe, twelve um, Republican attorneys general in twelve different states to fight this ESG reporting mandate now meanwhile blackrock and the biggest wall street firms are apparently firmly behind this esg reporting because they claim to need it for their proper due diligence what is your view as to what is fueling this backlash politics uh, certain pension funds specifically in florida and texas will not invest in esg uh, portfolios, I think they're going to miss out on what I call environmental alpha. I think there's a lot of ignorance out there about ESG. And I think, frankly, my thinking is that within five to six years, we won't even think of it as ESG. It'll be very more, much more mainstream. It has been an outlier, but as major corporations, and there are really two markets here, there's the private equity market that has huge pools of capital, but also huge carbon footprint in their portfolio companies. And then there's the corporates, which usually don't think short, short term. So, so the point is, they're going to embrace the E. There's another reason, though, and this is more behavioral than financial. You can't attract young employees if mm -hmm. you're not doing sustainable projects, if your company is not sustainable. And I think that's where they're missing the boat, fighting ESG. It's kind of like fighting the old war. We're going to drill in Alaska. We're never going to drill in Alaska, but you always hear we're going to drill in Alaska. The reason we're not going to drill in Alaska, it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. So there's just some... Uh, uh, unfortunately, straw men, we call them in politics, that people like to point to. But frankly, 
most investors are going to be much more interested mm -hmm. in getting a financial return and also feeling good doing the right thing, as we say in New York. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me as one of one of the hats that I wear is commercial real estate brokerage. And in, in real estate brokerage, in general, the fundamental mandate always is um, is reporting is is, you know, um, any any information you have on a building, you have to disclose. Dis so disclosure. Right. And that's essentially what this ESG mandates about, just disclosing the carbon emissions that, you know, these these buildings that are owned by by publicly traded companies, you know, how much what are they? How much what are the emissions? It's just it's just a, a, that mandate, which is very much in line with with real estate in general. So it's just curious why there's such an uproar about something that really should seem to be so, you know, um, understandable and reasonable, um, you know, interesting. Oh. I, I'm not worried about it. I think the controversy is kind of siloed. The, the, the real investor interest is, can I make a return on green investments? And right. I can argue, yes, you can. Wow. And at my summit, I have 46 speakers, including you, Robert, discussing different ways that people can mine those opportunities in the business community. And it's the business community that is driving this, not government. Yes, we have the Climate Bill, the uh, CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, but the capital necessary to decarbonize the global economy is now sized at $100 trillion. That's real money, and that's not going to be mostly government money. It's going to be private sector money. And, mm -hmm. the, and I've been up in both sectors. The private sector is looking at profit and loss. How can I make money doing mm -hmm. the right thing? That's a differentiator than government, which thinks much more short term. Right. And so we're talking about a decarbonization play and buildings are going to be a very big part of this. Transportation is going to be a very big part of this. Uh, but you know, if you start looking at portfolio, what I've noticed in the last two years that every carbon accounting software platform has raised over $100 million, including another one this week. Watershed raised another $100 million. So what are they doing? They are measuring the carbon footprint of corporations and private equity fund portfolio companies. And then we haven't even gone downstream to scope three emissions, which a lot of people get very confused about. Right. That's going to be the supply chain. This is a yep. massive shift globally. And ironically, the U.S. is one of the leaders. Well, I just absolutely love what you just touched on, which is really at the heart of our, our uh, value proposition, which is turning green into gold. So, you know, making commercial building decarbonization profitable, making this the new value add strategy in the 21st century. So I uh, so glad to hear you, you say that. So uh, if you had your way, what additional measures would you enact to accelerate building decarbonization? Well, this goes to building materials. I think there's a there's sort of a, people don't realize that concrete is one of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases. And so I'm working with one company that's reducing GHG emissions in cement. So there's a, there's a need to start looking at the, the whole materials and manufacturing cycle and what goes into buildings. How can we make things more sustainable? I mean, I know a lot of people were talking about bamboo, 
we don't grow bamboo in New York. So uh, there's a there's a need to start looking at all ways of making buildings much more holistic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we used to have six sick building syndrome. People don't talk about that very much. But I've worked with companies that had air quality devices inside uh, buildings for ionization. So mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of ways of tackling this problem. The good news is, we have much better technology in 2024 than we've ever seen before. Right. We've got better management systems. We have better software systems. Yeah. So I, I actually think this is just the beginning of a sea change moving to, as you call it, green to gold. This is yeah. going to be huge and long-term, long-dated, as we say on the street. And and to, to, um, to elaborate on the point you were making, there's really two components to decarbonization. There's embodied carbon, which is the carbon embodied in, embedded, if you will, in products. And of course, the biggest the biggest issue there, the biggest problem is concrete, um, you know, um, because that, I think that's 8% of all global, eight to 9% of all global carbon emissions is um, from the production of cement, Portland cement. Um, and then there's operational carbon, right? The, you know, how, how efficient a building is and what kind of fossil fuels are being burned. So really great point there. So, um, so excited to be uh, presenting at your Wall Street Green Summit, and um, it's been, you know, one of the one of the most important events um, for a number of years now. So, what are your goals and aspirations with your Wall Street Green Summit toward building decarbonization and sustainability? Really, education. We need to educate investors and fund managers that there are ripe opportunities right in front of their nose in New York in the building, the built environment, as we call it. It's right there. And conference has always been very focused on business development and networking. People have solutions. We have experts like yourself presenting new ideas to really fertile ground. And what happens afterwards is really kind of magical. People uh, get clients, people change jobs, all kinds of things happen that I'm totally unaware of until later. So we've had 9,000 people come to the event in 23 years. And once again, it's always in New York. There are very few of these kind of events in New York anymore. And we believe that if we can show this in New York, we can do this anywhere. So I still go back to the old metric of show and tell from second grade, demonstrate how you do this. Right, right, right. That's great. Um, so last question. This is the uh, main operative question of the moment, I suppose. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about humanity's ability to avoid the worst impacts of our climate crisis? Well, yesterday, as everyone knows, we went publicly on 1.5 degrees C. My bogey has always been two degrees C, 450 parts per million. We're not there yet. We still have some time, but I have looked at a lot of the climate models, I've looked at a lot. I've looked at this through many different lenses, engineering, architecture, medical. We have a problem. We have done nothing, nothing yet to reduce the global carbon footprint. And that it really sits a lot on the energy industry, which is 73% of greenhouse gases. So they're the ones that can make a lot of the solutions. You know, I worked on taking the lead out of gasoline with the EPA in 1976, and I was dispatched to do that because there were going to be gasoline shortages. Guess what? There were no gasoline shortages because engineers solved 
problems. Mm -hmm. I think this is the biggest problem we've ever seen. Of course, there are already deleterious effects like fires, flooding, uh, sea level rise, warming, also cooling. Uh, so this is not something that's going to go away quickly. Uh, but if we can get to carbon neutrality in the next 10 years, I don't think it's going to be 2030 anymore, then we could be on our way to net zero. But this is going to take a lot of work. The capital is there. Mm -hmm. The wherewithal politically probably isn't. So I'm actually very focused on the corporate sector, the private sector driving this change. Right. I just read today some good news that um, apparently there was a breakthrough with um, hydrogen production, um, domestic hydrogen production um, in, I think it was in France or the UK. Um, needless to say, you know, uh, ultimately, so, quote unquote, solar energy is fusion energy. That's really what it is. So the degree to we could, that we could create that on earth, that could be huge. So Peter, this is so, so fascinating. I want to thank you so much. And I do want to uh, give a shout out to your Wall Street Green Summit. Um, what's the best way for folks to, um, to learn more about it and to sign up? Very simply, go to www.thewallstreetgreensummit.com. All the information of the programs on the homepage, registration link is on the homepage, and we hope to see people there. Thank you very much, Robert. Great. So um, that's the end of our uh, podcast for today, our Green Into Gold podcast for today. Uh, we'll be with you next week with um, another uh, stellar guest, as, as Peter has been. And Peter, again, thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, thank you. Bye.